It's not always going after the buyer, it's really going after the people that use love and are screaming about your product internally and, and externally as well. Welcome to Build, the podcast from OpenView. I'm your host, Blake Bartlett, and the show features conversations with software founders, leaders, and investors. Each episode unpacks a new key insight on how to build your company and navigate the fast-changing world of software startups. In today's episode, I chat with Alex Bilmes, founder and CEO of Endgame, and we're talking about product-led sales. From Alex's definition, that means selling to companies that are already using your product. To me, that brought up a number of natural questions. Why do I need product-led sales if PLG is all about self-service? How is product-led sales different than regular SaaS sales? And what are the risks of product-led sales to watch out for? We unpack these questions and much, much more on this episode of Build. So let's dive in with Alex Bilmes. That's what we're talking about today. We're diving into product-led sales. So what makes you uniquely suited to speak about this topic of product-led sales and the problem behind it? I guess I would say I have approached it from every single way possible. I was a designer. My background used to call it building products that don't suck. Then I became a CEO uh, of a startup called Reflect, had to figure out how to build a product and then sell and realize the product itself was not always enough. Built a number of different internal systems and pissed off our engineers in the process because they had to build it as well as build the product. It was acquired by a company called Puppet, uh, built out a new division there and a product-led motion, which also incorporated sales. So just having gone through it on a number of different occasions, I've learned a little bit in the process. So what is product-led sales? From your definition, how do you think about it? How do you define it? Yeah, so I think of it very simply. It's just selling to people that are already using your product. To elaborate on that a little bit, the traditional selling motion might be to go and reach out to somebody over LinkedIn or send them an email or 50 emails or however many it takes to get them on a call. But product-led sales really focuses on who has signed up for your product, what features have they used, how far along the customer journey are they, uh, and then sales teams basically engage with those already active uh, users. We have a joke at Endgame, which is if somebody signs up, they're already a customer, they just haven't paid you yet. So instead of convincing somebody to use the product, which was, you know, original sales, old school sales, they're already using the product and you kind of want them to use more of the product, adopt more features, expand the usage across the organization. And so you're selling to those folks that have already adopted, already using it, already getting value. How do we sort of take it to the next level? Is that the idea? That's exactly right. In some cases, they're already using the product so successfully that all you need to do is ask them for money and they're uh, happy to give it to you, which is best case scenario, of course, but that does happen more often than you might expect. So I guess unpacking this a little bit, because obviously, you know, what I talk about a lot and, and many folks point to is, you know, one of the starting points or at least a pillar or a cornerstone of product-led growth is the ability for somebody to start the journey, to get value, to even convert, swipe the credit card, all on a self-service basis. So mm-hmm. without needing to talk to a salesperson. And so why do I need to think about product-led sales if I've built a self-service product? What's your thought process there? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And uh, I guess I would say it 
is not always enough, right? Uh, maybe a self-serve product gets you to 5 million revenue or, or 10 million or 20 million or 30 million or 50 or, you know, in some cases, maybe it's more than that. Rarely so in terms of my experience. So at a certain point, you've got a great funnel, you've got great usage, your ACV might be low. How do you really take it to the next step and go from a, you know, 10, 20 million, whatever it is, ARR business to a you know high velocity go to market machine that gives you the ability to become a, a publicly traded company and uh, continue growth, and so the other thing I would say is if you look at public companies such as Zoom and Slack and Datadog and MongoDB, they all have sales teams. And uh, the answer is simply that it works better. If you add sales, you typically drive a higher velocity motion and have higher ACVs and you make more money than if you don't. So I guess do what works. Yeah, the, the way I see it as, as somebody who works with, with startups from the, the investor side and, and sees lots of PLG businesses, both through the ones that we invest in, as well as just observing all of the public companies that, that the rest of us do, you, you kind of see something that, that plays out, which is... You know, once you've gotten to a level of success as a PLG business, the thing that got you there won't necessarily be the thing that gets you to the next level of success once you're at scale. You know, if I think about it, like even if you have the most beautiful self-service product of all time, if you get to 50 million of ARR, 100 million of ARR, whatever scale means for your business, at some point, credit card swipes aren't going to continue to drive the top line growth that you're looking for. And that's especially the case. I mean, if you fast forward all the way to massive scale of a PLG business, you can look at an Alassian or a Twilio or, or these types of businesses that are now at a, mil a billion dollars of ARR to move the needle, to keep driving growth. You, you need that foundation. That's a really good place to start with the self-service, but you got to start layering other things on top in order to move the needle. And, and sales is one of them. Uh, whether people call it embracing the enterprise and, and sort of expanding and extending to the enterprise, or if they call it sales or product-led sales, that certainly is one, the proactive effort, yep. along with you know other, other channels as well. But, but that, that's what I've seen time and again. And like you said, I mean, look at any large at-scale PLG business that's public today. They all got a large sales team, um, and, and they don't really look that much different once they're at scale. Right. So it, it's kind of an inevitability. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, I mean... Very simply put, we talk to so many sales leaders at all these PLG companies that you're probably very familiar with, and the typical response is, listen, we tried without sales, and then you add sales, and the numbers are better. It just works better. No matter how you think about it or how you slice it, you add sales on top of incredible tailwinds that you've built by having a product that's incredible enough to attract and retain users. It is just dynamite. It works incredibly well. The other thing I wanted to call out that's maybe a little bit less obvious, it's a little bit more nuanced, is certain businesses just require more human input or interference. There might be certain business objectives that you have to better align your product to, as an example, or you have to sell somebody because the implementation is bigger. Calendly, which I know you're very familiar with, is incredibly easy for somebody, anybody literally on the planet to go and sign up for, and you can immediately get value. You send one email with a Calendly link, and it's like done. There are certain products that just require a more significant preemptive investment, or at least an understanding that time and effort will need to be invested. I think one of the things that you and I have maybe talked about at some point in the past is say Webflow, right? Webflow is great. You can sign up, you can 
try it out. You can experiment with it as just about anybody on the planet. But unless the marketing team, as an example, says, hey, we need a new website, it's going to take a little bit more for somebody to go and figure out how to invest the time and resources. And in those situations, having a sales team can be really helpful. Similarly, if you look at it in a slightly different way, somebody might sign up for a product, but it could get blocked by a security team or an IT team. And so having a seller that's actually able to help build a business case for that champion to go take it to their teams internally can be incredibly helpful. So it really depends on the business. And I maybe am a little bit less of a PLG purist than most, where to me, it's a little bit of mix and match. It just depends on the business. Sometimes sales is really, really great to help untangle one part of the funnel. And sometimes it's acquisition, sometimes it's expansion, sometimes it's, you know, retention even in cases. Um, and so I just think it's uh, important to be thoughtful about what it means for your business versus what it means for everyone. Yeah. So we're kind of highlighting a few different factors here. One is the kind of the company specific, meaning the PLG company specific yep. dynamic, which is at yep. some point you're going to get to a scale that you need to add other things like sales, Correct. like partnerships and channel, like international to keep moving the needle at yep. scale, but there are other factors. It's not just, you know, once you're a big company, you need to grow up and think about yep. sales. There are other things about the actual product itself, about the customer journey, that it might be more of a considered purchase. And uh, and that makes sense to me because like you point to Calendly, I could point to other, you know, productivity tools and things yep. that you can start using on your own for your own use case. And that's one thing. But when you go from that personal individual use case and that value to then, well, my whole team should be using it or my whole org should be using it or my whole company should be using it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to mm -hmm. be as frictionless to get from that first point to that next point. And if yep. that becomes a considered purchase, you know, you, you might need it. Or if like you pointed to, the product is a considered purchase out of the gates, uh, it's going to take consideration. It's going to take help. People are going to have questions. Um, they're going to have how-to questions. How do I do this thing? Uh, and they're also going to have capability questions. Do you have this security feature or whatever it may be? And so recognizing that being a purist actually limits yourself and being more open and, and having that mindset of, well, we all want to get to the same destination, which is more people using this product, more people getting value out of this product, more people having success. We might have that PLG foundation, but how do we maximize on top of that foundation the things that lead to those desired outcomes for us as the company, as well as for the customer that's considering adopting? That's exactly right. And one other nuanced point is there's this new role that we see develop, which is really solving a lot of those problems that you just mentioned, which is maybe it's not even sales, but it's salesy. Uh, we see teams called uh, sales assist teams that have product specialists on those teams and it's sort of a blend between a salesperson and a customer success person, a productive support person, a little bit of like SDR know-how sprinkled in there where you're really trying to unblock the customer from successfully completing and proceeding along their customer journey and therefore becoming very successful. And it's sort of this weird amalgamation of these different skill sets that have been traditionally found in, in functions, but solved in a different way for, you know, a specific customer trying to do specific things within a customer journey and being able to look at the product information that, you know, helps those teams make those customers successful. I love that you call that out. I am a huge fan of onboarding specialists. Um, it, it's such go. a generic a, title, exactly but it's right. generic yeah. in the sense that it can mean anything and it can serve that whatever your onboarding needs, whatever your customers need in their journey, yeah. the onboarding specialist can be there to provide it. And, and I do think this is an important distinction, you know, back to the self-service piece. 
if the onboarding specialist is mandatory and nobody can make progress without them, you're yeah. probably doing it wrong. If you it's can exactly make right. progress without them, but then they're there to help on an optional basis, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. Oh, you want to go down that path? I'm here mm -hmm. to help. Here's how you go down that path. Oh, you're, you're running into this roadblocker? Great. I'm here to help. Here's how you get mm -hmm. unblocked. And it might entail a sales conversation or getting mm -hmm. on the phone and something that's more human effort oriented, but it also might just be, look at this area of our help desk or, or of our um, documentation. Look at this area of, you know, the FAQs, um, those mm -hmm. types of things as well. And so that onboarding specialist really is a concierge to help the person mm -hmm. on their journey. The optional versus non-optional is spot on. We see a lot of success within our customer base of onboarding specialists, as you described, or product specialists or advocates, we've heard them called technical SDRs, what have you, do even things like send Loom videos uniquely for each customer based on what they have seen that customer do within the product successfully, successfully or unsuccessfully. And those are like really tailored and super helpful and very proactive. And, you know, there's a ton of engagement for that type of content because it's optional to your point. Yeah. Yeah. The goal is advancing everybody on the customer journey to the next step as opposed to just qualifying MQLs so they become SQLs. So, yeah, I'm aligned with it. Um, I guess unpacking this a little bit further, sort of the compare and contrast. If we think about, you know, product-led sales, what does it look like in real life and how is it? I guess, different than your classic SaaS sales? What are some of the biggest differences that you see? First off, the asymmetry between the size of the sales team and the size of the funnel or customer base is, it's just crazy different, right? So you might have, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 accounts per AE in a traditional company. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. It just depends. Now, you know, recent comps, look at Miro as an example, they announced their uh, funding uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, 30 million users. So how many sales people do you think Miro has? And what is the coverage ratio in terms of how many end users or accounts a rep has to handle? It's insane because you have this viral, organic self-service usage that's just expanding. And so first off, a rep just has to deal with many, many more accounts, significantly more. And so the challenge becomes, which one do I focus on? But not just which one do I focus on in general, which one do I focus on today versus say tomorrow? <laughs> because there are so many of them that sequencing and prioritization becomes so incredibly important. So you're looking at what behavioral changes have happened in the say the last 24 hours were there 20 people using the product and all of a sudden nobody's logging in i should probably follow up or was it one person kicking tires and all of a sudden there's 30 people that just join the team today and are doing certain things that we know are indicative of conversion as an example and the propensity for those is super high so i want to go and talk to them today while they're experimenting with this particular feature this particular part of the product or what have you so a lot of it is much more timely relevant you're looking at areas of change and you're looking at what's changed today versus what's changed yesterday versus what's changed this week because a stateful view is just insufficient given the incredibly large number of users and accounts your brain just glazes over if you look at the same thing every day and you don't really know where to start your day so i'd say that's uh, a big one generally speaking obviously the data that you have access to is so much more high fidelity you have a lot more color on the customer, not just, you know, what white 
papers they've interacted with, which is fantastic and everything, or, you know, what they told you, uh, or what you as a sales rep, as an example, put into a CRM, which is all fantastic. But the true unlock is what are they doing? Who's doing what? So what are the accounts that are surging, as I mentioned previously, or usage is going down, but also who are the people in those accounts that are the people that you want to be reaching out to? So can you start identifying certain behavioral characteristics that are indicative of a particular user being a champion? One that we see very consistently is, say, someone invites a lot of other users to the product. The person who's typically inviting everyone is the champion. They're the ones that are saying, hey, you should come check this out. I think this product is great. I think it's awesome. I think it's going to solve our use cases. And so how do you identify that individual? How do you see what features, as an example, have been used either by that individual? What if, say, a buyer persona logs into the product? I'd want to see if I were Figma, say, the VP of design logging in and spending some time. That means they know the product. That means they're interacting with it. That means if I reach out to them, they're not going to think I'm a crazy person coming out of the blue or just sending them an outbound email. And so that behavioral data that is so timely, so temporarily relevant because it changes so quickly is incredibly valuable and it's a huge unlock. And the last thing on that I'll just say is it makes it such that you can get a path as a salesperson to the right buyer through the champion, even if they're not in the product. So instead of reaching out to somebody cold, you can actually go to the person who loves your product and you can talk to them and you can get a better understanding of who within the organization uh, you should be speaking to, and they might tell you that it's not the person that you thought it was. Maybe it's somebody else, or maybe the person that you thought it was is on, you know, paternity or maternity leave or what have you. And here's somebody that's kind of, you know, excited about this opportunity and is the right individual to be in contact with. So building those relationships uh, by really getting close to the people that use the product. Some reps have referred to it as going through the janitor. Uh, however you want to describe it, it's not always going after the buyer. It's really going after the people that use love and um, are screaming about your product internally and, and externally as well in a positive way. So there is so much brilliance in that. I, I want to unpack what you just said because, you know, light bulbs are going off left and right as, as you're <laughs> describing this. And as I kind of rewind the tapes, if we just focus first on this coverage ratio piece and this volume mm -hmm. piece, you know, rewind the tapes, like old school enterprise sales, an individual rep might have, you know, I don't know, 10 accounts to, to really think about yeah. when they're all really, really big. And in some cases, I mean, like true old school enterprise, you might have one account. It's just like, I work this account. It's a massive enterprise. It's one of the biggest companies in the world. I walk the yeah. halls all day, every day. It's an eight figure account. We want to make it a, you know, get it close to a nine figure account. I mean, it's like a sales rep could spend their entire career on one account, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a little bit of extreme, but like, I think that one to 10 zone for the old school mm -hmm. sales days of, of enterprise back when you're in the field was pretty relevant. And then you move to sort of SaaS sales and everything's inside and everything's over the phone uh, and the deal size has come down. You know, you're, you're kind of selling ACVs to rent the software as opposed to these big CapEx purchases. All right, maybe now I'm owning 100 accounts or maybe at the, the outsize up to 1,000 accounts uh, and using a customer success uh, tool or something like that to just understand what's going on within my account base. But then you get to PLG and you're no longer talking about hundreds or thousands, you're talking about tens of thousands of <laughs> accounts or perhaps more that you might need to have you know, visibility into. And so that yeah. just becomes obviously very unwieldy as you were pointing to. 
you can't know the names and, and sort of faces and their birthdays and their favorite bottle of wine for tens of thousands of people uh, like you could in the old school days. And so you have to rely on something else. And, and you're pointing to the fact that you have to rely on data. And obviously, lots of people point to data and the value of data. But here, it's specifically, make sure I get it right, it's behavioral data. What are they actually doing in your product? And then how does that change over time? And if you see great behavior, and if you see it going in the right direction, you know, that, you know, we went from five users to 15 users in, in, in a week or something like that, or the champion starting to come into the account, those are the relevant changes in the behaviors that matter most that would indicate, okay, this one, this one needle in this huge haystack of tens of thousands <laughs> of accounts, that's who to call today. And here's why. That's exactly right. Uh, one of our customers calls us a needle finder, actually. So uh, pretty, pretty spot on as a, as a metaphor there. And so that's right. The other thing to call out there is, uh, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but change. You're really looking at inflections and anomalies and things that are different. And that's really where you're focused uh, and where you spend your time and particularly recent things that have changed a lot. So if you look at things that are changing, that's typically where the interesting things are. So we've been talking about the need for product-led sales, the benefits of product-led sales, why you should embrace it, all these different factors, what it looks like. I guess, what are some of the downsides or what are the risks? If somebody's going to embrace this or they're already on embracing it, um, it's, it's not a, a pure unbridled good. They need to be mindful of some things and do it the yeah. right way. Yeah. What comes to, to mind there for you? At the earlier stages in a company's life cycle, sales can be used too aggressively to solve for certain product gaps. Sometimes you just have certain goals that you need to hit or the board's you know, pushing for more revenue faster or what have you, and you just try to muscle it. Sometimes it works, and sometimes you could sort of go and fill the product gaps uh, at a later point. Sometimes you lean too heavily on humans and sales to solve some existential product challenges and that can significantly slow growth uh, in later years. The other thing that we see, particularly at the later stage, is the sales business can start cannibalizing the self-service business. So say you actually had a self-service business that's very healthy and you do want to apply sales, you have to be very careful because Sometimes certain customers will totally convert by themselves and the ACV might not be huge, but it's incredibly high velocity. It doesn't require a salesperson to be involved, which can be nice for many reasons. And sometimes salespeople will come in and close deals that would have closed on their own and not necessarily at a higher ACV. And so if that becomes commonplace, you end up cannibalizing a part of your business. And there's also a number of cultural implications and, you know, interesting dynamics within a company that can arise because of that tension uh, between teams. So it's just really important to be very, very thoughtful about the, the goals of the product-led sales business and, you know, not go and, again, cannibalize something that's already working. Yeah. No, so I, I think that makes so much sense because I do see this oftentimes, which is if you roll out a PLG product and then you don't see the kind of response that you want to see, or if you see people getting stuck at a particular point in the journey or in the funnel, you can apply, you could put people there. You could put salespeople there to help with that friction. And that might be the right answer if that's where the considered purchase happens, but it also might be that you confuse them. The product flow wasn't very intuitive and you, you know you are actually papering over a product problem 
with sales folks. And then while it will look like in the numbers that it's working, hey, this was mm -hmm. there was no people here. We applied people. Now our conversion rates are up and isn't this great? But if you fast forward again to when you're at scale, then now you have to have those people. You have to continue scaling that organization. Otherwise, your customer acquisition engine is going to fall apart. And so it kind of comes back to this idea of our people and our sales resources and a sales pressure that you can apply. Is it optional or is it mandatory in order for people to make progress on the customer journey? That and also depends dramatically on your deal size on your ACV. So if you're applying a ton of sales pressure to, you know, $400 a month or, you know, 5k per year accounts, you better have a really, really efficient sales motion. If you're applying sales pressure to five figure, six figure deals, and those are moving through the funnel pretty quickly, maybe it's okay. So there's, again, a little bit more nuance in terms of where does it make sense? Where does it not make sense? And, you know, to the earlier question of where can it fall down, if you're applying a lot of human horsepower, particularly if you have like, you know, really good reps that are pretty expensive and you're going after small deals, your conversion numbers might be fantastic. But at a certain point, it just doesn't really pencil out. You might be paying out of three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year for a sales rep that's really strong and they're closing, you know, <laughs> they might have an 80% close rate, but their sales cycle might be, you know, two months and the deal is 5k. So there's just there's the, the sort of like mathematical aspect of making sure that it is applied in the right areas where it's also financially feasible and builds for a long term sustainable business. Yeah, and that's kind of related to the other point that you mentioned, which is and I see this all the time in, in PLG businesses is that you can add sales and really all you're adding is CAC. You're not actually adding incremental ARR. So that's that's the <laughs> point. That's exactly, that's great. Yeah, that's a really succinct way to describe but it. But there's also, even if you do that, there still is a lens that you can look through, a more myopic lens that tells you you're being successful, which is, are the reps coming up ramp? Are they hitting their quota? Okay, great. We can keep adding reps. This is <laughs> exactly. awesome. Our sales engine is working. <laughs> Meanwhile, if you take the next step zoomed out, okay, true, but we're not actually adding any more ARR. So all we did was give the leads that would have naturally converted on a self-service basis to the salespeople to claim credit for, and we're actually not winning at all. We're actually in a worse position because we have all this CAC, um, and we're not getting anything incremental for it. So that's a problem. You should definitely avoid that situation. What you just described, so what is the problem of, you know, or how do you incorrectly apply uh, sales to a product and business? What you just described is probably the poster child use case of how that could go terribly wrong. So thank you for articulating that beautifully. That's exactly right. I think that's worst, worst case uh, scenario. Actually, there's one scenario that's even worst case, which is you do all that and it still doesn't convert. But let's just save that for, you know, the the sort of bucket that we hope figure it out. And that one is 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 really not one that maybe we can help solve. But yeah, that, I think that's a new product bucket. <laughs> you need that's a, a new, new product. That's a new product. That's a new <laughs> Find product a new problem exactly to solve. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Find, yeah, that's a product market fit problem. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So in closing, I'd love to shift gears into just some super hyper tactical, practical advice for founders that might be listening right now. So if we have a PLG founder who's listening and wants to take that first step of adding product led sales to their PLG company, where do they start? Where do they begin? It's a good question. It depends on the stage. So if you're really early and I mean, you know, your seed stage company, not that, you know, seed stage means much 
anymore, just given the funding dynamics. But say you're early, say you're, you know, a few million in revenue, maybe a million in revenue, you have a bottom up funnel. I think it's incredibly important for founders to just go and sell a few deals on their own, meaning whoever the most, you know, go to market driven founder is typically, I, I think it should be the CEO uh, wherever possible, but just start going and talking to customers and see what it would take to build a product or put a deal together that would effectively be meaningful and one that would support a sales motion potentially, right? So just go and put together a 10K, 20K, 30, 50, 100K, whatever it is deal and do a few of those to learn as much as you possibly can about what it looks like. M many times there are gonna be specific product gaps or deficiencies, or maybe you need SOC 2 type 2, or maybe you need a particular dashboard report for a buyer, and that's what drives that higher ACV, or maybe you need to fix certain product features that they just specifically ask for. Maybe there's just a gap, right, that, that isn't any of those things. Uh, it just really depends. So figuring that out, I think, is really, really important. Now, later stage, what we typically see is sometimes it's as we talked earlier, like onboarding specialists or customer success teams that are kind of sort of selling, but not really. There's enough momentum, there's enough demand, there's enough usage, there's enough self-service conversion plus some assist conversion where you can bring in a more structured team with some goals to say, hey, we're going to take all these 5K accounts and we're going to go and try to make them into 30 or 40 or 50K accounts or whatever those numbers are. And so you typically start with, you know, two reps, probably say, you know, start with two typically instead of one as kind of commonplace advice, I guess I'd say, but sort of build your formative sales team and, you know, figure out what that looks like. Slightly different scenario would be a later stage company that is traditionally sales led and you want to build a product led motion so that you can do product led sales, which we actually see very consistently as well. A number of public companies are saying, Hey, this is where the world is going. Customers want to buy by, you know, trying the product, sharing it with their friends, and then they want to come talk to us or we come talk to them and not before. In those cases, it's difficult because the organization is used to selling in a more traditional way, but we've actually seen some success with with companies that basically build out new business units or you know new startups within a larger company or a new cloud offering as an example, if it's a more traditional on-premise type business and effectively run that as much like a startup as possible and start getting some people signing up and using the product. And there's a subset of the core go-to-market team that might come over and try to experiment pretty quickly. But listen, the net across all those is experimentation is pretty important and start small, don't boil the ocean, have a hypothesis is better than, you know, coming at it completely, you know, too open-minded um, means that your, your brain can fall out, but having some hypothesis that you're going to go experiment against and, you know, whether that be in the early stages, just closing some early deals, or maybe it's, you know, a little bit later nurturing some accounts uh, with people in a more product sort of specialist assisty onboarding e customer success -y type motion before you add a few sales reps to just drive uh, certain types of deals or if it's even building a net new motion within a more traditional business start small have a goal or two experiment pretty quickly don't bring too many people in super early on and then expand once you see inklings of success so what i'm hearing there is when you're applying sales pressure for the first time, whether it's founder sales for the first time or whether it's adding sales to something that's already got a lot of traction, whatever it is, view it as an experimentation, view it as a test, 
and then have an open mind on a couple of different factors. One, is this going to be something that actually gets people to the next stage of their journey? And is it going to be economical to actually sort of apply you know, the, the additional CAC here? Is it going to work? But yeah. also, because we're talking about the product-led world, is there something in the product that I can change to where I actually can solve this problem through a few lines of code or through a design change as well? And if you always have both of those things in your mind, as you're experimenting and as you're applying sales pressure, it'll point to where do I need to make my product better and where do I have opportunity to accelerate conversion through sales pressure. But while avoiding the sort of the risk of you know confusing those two things and just applying sales to everything or being too purist and thinking that lines of code will solve all customer-oriented problems. That's spot on. Slightly different way of saying it even is product market fit in this case it is product market fit or you're trying to figure out product market fit, right? Because you have two moving targets. You have the product and you have the market. So you can adjust your sales approach. You can adjust the product. Two moving targets is always difficult. You want to reduce as much as possible the number of things that you're experimenting with, at least at a given time, because you have two moving targets and that's, you know, two problems <laughs> worse than having one problem, right? And you don't know exactly if the product solves it better or it's a go to market, you know, question or a go to market process change. So that's spot on. I'll tell you on the other side, the biggest failing I have seen consistently across many companies that we work with or many companies that I've interacted with in the past is being too prescriptive and too definitive on what the process should look like and really getting into the process optimization piece before the learning piece. Examples of that are, let's build some crazy Salesforce lead flow. When somebody does this one thing in the product, we're gonna kick off 20 workflows and we're gonna notify this person, and this person, that person, and then there's an email that goes out. So over-indexing on automation and process building too early is by far the biggest non, like just like, full stop issue that we see. And so how do you start really, really small? How do you test one thing? How do you do it manually until it's working and it's really painful? Then you add process and you add automation, then you add you know systems and rules and not before. And too often teams try to get really mathematical really early. We're like, you know, conversion modeling and you know, funnel analysis on a data set that's like 10. It's just not statistically significant. And so it's its not as obvious, uh, but just having seen it a number of different times, start with the basics, super simple. When the pain is too great and you're closing, you can't you just have sales capacity issues because it's working so incredibly well. You continue to add process to, to scale, but not before. Well, Alex, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I think we've covered the high level theoretical and philosophical about product-led sales <laughs> all the way down to the very tactical, where do I start? What do I need to be mindful of as I get going with my experimentation and everything in between? So this has been incredibly helpful to me. I've learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you again. Thanks for having me, Blake. Thanks for checking out Build. If you enjoyed the conversation today, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so that others can find the show as well. 